lead her every day, living for messy action. This is the Lifestyle Leadership Podcast for women who want to be the best version of themselves while making an impact. And who are willing to take messy and perfect action to get there. I'm Jordan. And I'm Dr. Tay. And we are here to guide and empower you to lead yourself every day. Let's dive into today's episode. Hi, y'all. It is Dr. Tay here, and I'm coming to you with a special episode this week. This was actually a presentation for the Virtual CEO Mom Summit, which went live a couple weeks ago, but I wanted to bring this episode to you. It is all about navigating and knowing what to do if you have concerns about your child's development. So Jordan and I chatted about it and we wanted to air it for you. So enjoy and I cannot wait to hear what you think. If you found value out of this episode, we would absolutely love if you'd be willing to share that on your stories and tag us at leadher.everyday. All right, let's dive in. Just as a reminder, anything shared on our episodes are not clinical advice. Please talk to a qualified mental health professional if you are needing more support. Hi, everyone. I am so excited to be here. And today I am going to talk to you about what you do if you have concerns about your child's development. So I know on the Facebook group, there was already an introduction, but I just want to share this information because there is so much information out there. And In many ways, that's good because we learn to educate ourselves. But on the other side, we have to know that we're getting this information from reputable sources. So one of the reasons that I can feel confident to show up today and teach you this is this is my area of expertise. I am a licensed psychologist and I specialize in child psychology. I have been working in this field with children directly for over a decade. um, And this is what I do. This is my livelihood. This is what I support parents through is being a psychologist and actually working, you know, with parents when they present with concerns. So we're going to walk through what you do if you have concerns about your child, where you go, how to know if you have concerns and what you should actually do about it. I also am a coach and I work directly with parents because so often what I find is parents are likely to seek help for their child. But how often are you willing to seek support for yourself? And that was one of the gaps that I realized is that I was working with all these families and I you know, was it letting the parent know about maybe a diagnosis, something like autism, which is my area of expertise or anxiety or ADHD and the parents going, okay, how do we help my child? What's the next step? But there's things that go on in your brain. There's processing that has to be done, you know, and you're trying to balance it all. So that is one of the things is I want to encourage you that through this process, yes, advocate for your child. That's exactly what we're going to talk about today. But I had to give this little caveat first that make sure you are also seeking support for yourself if you need it. I'm always here as a resource and an, and am happy to hop on a call with you to discuss how you navigate, you know, parenting, your career and really building that and just different aspects about how your thoughts and feelings lead to your actions. And those actions create the results that you either desire or don't desire. All right. So let's actually hop into talking about your child because that is what you signed up for. So the first tip that I have though, about what do you do if you have concerns about your child, right? And their development. But before we go there, I want to talk about how do you know if there are concerns? You can go, you can Google everything, 
don't recommend that because what you're going to find is you're going to go down a rabbit hole in on Google. And I know so many of you have already done that. I'm sure you're listening to this and being like, oops, guilty, right? If you want reputable information shared to you, education about child development, be sure to follow me on Instagram. It's the period doctor, D-R period Tay. I also am on TikTok as well. Here's the first piece that I want to make sure you hear loud and clear to follow your mommy gut. What do I mean by that, right? What is a mommy gut? This is your intuition where you're like, I'm just feeling like this isn't either typical for my child or maybe this isn't how children typically develop. And you know your child best. I tell parents all the time, I may be an expert in child development. I may be an expert in autism or, you know, figuring out, is this clinically significant anxiety? How do we work with emotion dysregulation? All of that is true, but no one else is the expert of a child besides you and maybe your partner as well. But in general, you are the expert of your child. You know your child best. And this is where I say following your mommy gut is super, super important. It is so incredibly valuable. And most times what I find working with parents is their intuition ends up matching to what I am sharing with them. And many times they look at me and they're like, I knew. It's like, yeah, I knew you knew, right? And so follow that intuition, follow that mommy gut. And remember to be empowered in this process that you're the expert of your child. And I wanna encourage you to find providers that are willing to collaborate with you. So we're gonna dive in now to talking about what different concerns are. Here's the, the real deal about this. I can't in a short timeframe like this, provide you every possible developmental concern and different combinations of symptoms and, you know, educating on every single disorder. But what I can do is start to give you some like key pieces that you might watch for or consider. So in terms of early child development, I'm talking infants, toddlers, maybe up to preschoolers. We're looking at developmental milestones. You can look up these developmental milestones from the CDC, keeping in mind that there is a range of typical development. Um, and also keeping in mind, again, come back to that mommy gut. If you really feel like something's off, it's worth having a conversation about. We typically see young children walk about 12 months of age. Again, there's a range. Um, before that though, they are crawling. And what's really interesting, the CDC actually removed crawling recently as a developmental milestone because not all kids crawl. And so then they kind of reconfigured it. But crawling is actually a really important aspect of motor development. It's where kids learn a lot of coordination. Just because a kid doesn't crawl doesn't mean that something is concerning about their development. Or just because a kid walks late doesn't mean that there's something concerning about their development. But when you start to see multiple pieces come together, that's where you might start to be like, hmm. Maybe I need to talk to a professional. Other things is kids are typically starting to say words around 12 months of age. So between 12 and 18 months of age, we should see single words developing, lots of them. Between 18 and 24 months of age, that's when we should start to see our kids develop 
two word phrases. So want milk, more cookies, things like that. If you're seeing delays in these areas, please know that there are early intervention systems. Um, and so one of the things I know about this, this crew here is we're from different parts of the world. So I'm not going to go into the specifics about how to navigate these systems because it's going to be different in every country, but all countries have some sort of early developmental program or early intervention where they're going to be able to target things like helping to support your child's motor skills or your child's language skills. Other things that you might look for in the really early childhood period are signs and symptoms of autism. This could be things like not making eye contact with you, not responding to their name, not pointing at things, um, being really fixated on objects. Maybe they're lining them up. Maybe they're spinning the wheels on their car, having a hard time, you know, transitioning from one activity to a next where you're getting significant distress, you feel like you're having to walk on eggshells, um, not being interested in other kids, preferring to play by themselves, having sensory difficulties, things like, you know, food aversions, like not liking certain textures, being a highly picky eater. Um, we also have things like, you know, not wanting to wear certain clothing or like not wanting to get their hands dirty. You know, there's so many different combinations, but the key in all of this is, one thing isn't concerning, but when we start to have multiple of these symptoms, that could be an indicator that, you know, there is some concern for autism. And so this is where you want to go actually see a provider. As we move into more of the preschool years and definitely into elementary school, this is where we might start to see signs and symptoms of ADHD, attention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. Now, sometimes we hear about this as ADD, attention deficit disorder. That actually doesn't exist anymore. So the way that we diagnose things, everything falls under the umbrella of ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. But kids can have different profiles. They might be the inattentive type, or they might be the impulsive hyperactive type, or they might be all of that. Um, but when we start to see that a kid is having difficulty sitting in the seat, their seat, they're frequently climbing on things. They're doing things like they have no fear, for example. They're willing to jump off of things or they're blurting out. They're having a diff difficult time waiting their turn. Really distractible. Or sometimes with ADHD, we see the opposite. They actually get really hyper-focused on what they are doing. I will say inattention difficulties and some hyperactivity can be normative. It doesn't automatically mean that if your child has some of this, that it is reaching a clinically significant level. In order for it to be clinically significant, what that means is that we have to ultimately have some impairment. It's got to be affecting their day-to-day -day living. Other things we start to see develop around the preschool age range are actually anxiety and depression. So there's been a lot of research done on what's called early onset depression or preschool onset depression. It is possible. It tends to show up as more irritability, um, but you know you might see things like a low mood or not having energy to do things, um, not enjoying activities that the child used to enjoy. And this this profile of depression then can increase into, you know, elementary age and into, you know, that preteen age and into adolescence and all of that. As kids grow, you might also start to see evidence of what we call death ideation or suicidal ideation, wanting to die, wanting to kill themselves. And that can be really alarming as a parent. Um, and 
understandably. But what we actually know is that death ideation and suicidal ideation aren't that infrequent. It actually happens probably more often than we realize. The key is we just got to make sure that the child is working with the therapist and getting the right support. The last um, one that I mentioned that I'll kind of dive into is anxiety. And anxiety has many, many different forms. Um, Often we'll start to see this in, you know, preschool age range, although I've seen kids as young as three have clinically significant anxiety and then, of course, increasing. So types of anxiety. Let's talk about that, like the worrier. Um, Sometimes, again, depending if it's reaching a clinical significant level, that would fall under what's called generalized anxiety disorder. Lots of what if questions, or I often like to think about a lot of adult worries. Like they're worried like about finances, for example, things that kids shouldn't be worried about, um, but their their mind kind of gets stuck on it. We also have things like what's called selective mutism, which is difficulty speaking in front of other people. You might see, you know, like they go to school and the teacher's reporting they're not speaking at at all. That's an indicator of selective mutism. Um, Social anxiety is another one. So having difficulty around new people, groups of people, that type of thing, that tends to show up a little bit later, more into school age and adolescence, um, but not completely impossible in that early childhood period either. Um, We might have like a specific phobia, like being really scared of like, snakes, for example, or really scared of flying, things like that, as well as what is called separation anxiety disorder. So being highly attached to you or another person. Often with separation anxiety, what we see is there's a lot of worry about parent safety or their own safety as well. They might have difficulty sleeping in their own bed. They might have difficulty with you leaving the house. OCD is kind of separate from this umbrella of anxiety, but it is related. And so you have obsessions and compulsions being really particular um, or having that that's more the compulsion, um, having to do things in a certain way. And the key for a compulsion is that if that certain thing doesn't happen, they really truly believe that their obsession, their thoughts are going to happen. And a lot of times those are like bad things um, and they're very intrusive. So keep in mind that young kids can have OCD as well. So these are the different types of anxiety, but notice there's a lot of variability. It could be something that your child is worrying about finances to they can't sleep alone to they're not able to talk um, in public situations. What I will do is I'm going to provide a PDF that you get access to um, and you can get different, I'll provide different book recommendations where you can learn more about these disorders from reputable sources and then also what to do as a next step. But let's dive into, you have these concerns, what do you do? Remember, following your mommy gut and remembering you're the expert of your child. So the first step that I'm going to actually recommend you do is to talk to your child's pediatrician or primary care physician about your concerns. Um, Often what we do see is sometimes, you know, these concerns don't present themselves in the doctor's office. And so it's really important for you as the parent to advocate for your child to bring these things up. Sometimes the pediatrician will say like, hey, I'm noticing this. Or sometimes you'll get screening measures and like your child will flag on those. But more often than not, I find it very beneficial for parents to be bringing their concerns. 
Hopefully your pediatrician, your primary care provider is collaborative with you and is listening to your concerns and is willing to help support you to finding those next steps. Unfortunately, that is not always the case. And I often get families that present to me that had to really advocate to go see a psychologist. Um, and they're being told by their pediatrician, this is particularly true for autism. We can identify autism and diagnose autism as young as 14 months of age. But I often hear pediatricians telling families, hey, like, we can only diagnose this starting at three or no one will assess it. You just have to find a provider that is willing to work with you. If your provider isn't, you know, validating your concerns, you know, initially you might be like, okay, maybe I'm overreacting. Rental anxiety is a very, very real and valid thing. Um, and it's absolutely okay. Like being a parent is so incredibly difficult. No one handed you the operation manual and told you exactly what to do. And even more so, no one tells you what to do. There's no operation manual or like an addendum if your child has concerns and like when to be concerned and when not to. And sometimes that parental anxiety kicks into overdrive. And that's where I also love through my coaching business, being able to support parents and helping to kind of piece that apart as well. So sometimes that's the case, but then other times it's like you, you might be like, okay, maybe I'm overreacting, but you go home, you continue to have concerns. What can you do next? So there is a couple routes. One, don't be afraid to go back to your pediatrician and be like, listen, I understand we talked about this already, but I'm really concerned. I keep seeing it. You know, what can be really helpful too is maybe like write down examples or track like when this is happening to be able to be like, listen, every single day she was worrying about what would happen when I drop her off at school. Am I going to get in a car crash? every single day. And it's creating meltdowns. It's creating tears. Like she is so visibly upset. And then hopefully the pediatrician will be like, okay, I see your point. So sometimes they just need to hear the concerns more than once. So again, don't be afraid to advocate. Don't be afraid to speak up. Another option is you might consider, you know, finding a different provider in terms of pediatrician or primary care physician who will listen. Because most likely, you know, I'm not in the game of like encouraging people to like pediatrician hop here, but most likely if they're dismissing these concerns now, what else are they going to be dismissing? And you want to feel like you have a collaborative partnership with your child's primary care physician. Another option is actually contacting your insurance and figuring out, do you need a referral in order to see a psychologist or like a therapist, like a child therapist? Some insurances, you do need that referral, in which case you can go back to the pediatrician and say, it is okay to be bold. It is okay to advocate and say, listen, I know you said there's no concerns, but this is my right as a parent. I want my child evaluated. Can you please write the referral for X in whatever it is, psychologist, child therapist, that type of thing. Um, developmental pediatrician, that's another route. Um, so if you need that referral, don't be afraid to be direct about it and say, this is what I need. Um, and you can even say things like, okay, worst case scenario is we learn I'm wrong but at least then I, I know that we've looked into this. Um, and again, I want to validate that is normal to do. Um, another option is some insurances don't require you to actually have a referral. So you can contact 
therapists or psychologists directly. Um, Psychology Today is a great resource. You can go on and research providers in your area. Um, Therapy Den is another one. Um, I am less familiar with these type of websites outside of the U.S. I do think some of them work, but don't be afraid to also call your insurance and say, hey, I don't need a referral. Who can I see that's a child psychologist specializing in? This is my concern. Or like, especially for autism, I say to parents, like, Find a psychologist who knows autism and knows, especially if you're you have a little kid that is comfortable assessing autism really early on. Um, so don't be afraid to ask your insurance provider um, or ask other parents. A lot of times you'd be surprised, like other parents know parents, even if they aren't directly having their child see someone. Or you can go onto these websites or do like a Google search. So keep that in mind. The last piece is if your um, insurance does require a referral, um, you can opt not to use your health insurance and pay out of pocket or what's called private pay. So my personal private practice, I am solely private pay. um, And so what that means is parents are paying me directly. They do have the option that if they want to, it's called a super bill. um, If they want to take that and submit it to their insurance for reimbursement, they absolutely can. But I find working with parents that sometimes there's benefits to not going through your health insurance if you have the financial resources to do so. So obviously this is going to be a significantly more expensive route. But a couple things is sometimes it um, kind of circumvents that referral. And then sometimes too, it can provide different types of care, higher access to care, or like the insurance company isn't saying like, no, they're not approved to do this. Um, You ultimately as the parent get the say and you're working directly with the the mental health provider. Keeping in mind, if you want any sort of like testing done, for example, autism, ADHD, you do need to see a psychologist for that. Sometimes developmental pediatricians will also make diagnoses for that. Sometimes pediatricians themselves will make diagnoses of like ADHD, for example, and they're willing to prescribe the medication if you choose to go the medication route. Just a quick little caveat, medication is not the only option for ADHD. And the research guide that I'm going to provide has some behavioral interventions that can be really well-suited and really effective for ADHD. Um, I do recommend before putting your child on medication as a psychologist, I can't prescribe medication, but I am not opposed to medication. I've seen it be highly, highly beneficial, but making sure you do a process where you're actually making sure it's ADHD. So sometimes what we see is like, oh, my child's really inattentive. And so we put them, give them the ADHD diagnosis, put them on medication. And it's like, huh, this didn't work. Or maybe you end up missing something because what we know is anxiety and depression can also have symptoms of inattention that go with it. So you want to make sure you're getting that accurate diagnosis. Um, A child therapist, for example, would be able to help with things like anxiety and depression and all of that, where it's like, if you know you're ready just to jump into therapy, they can make that like that diagnosis for therapy purposes um, and develop a treatment plan and all of that. So I hope that is helpful. Keeping in mind, going back to point number one, you are the expert of your child. So make sure you find a provider that values your input as the parent. Now, what to do when you're, you've done this, right? And what are the next steps? So 
often what we're looking at is therapy, um, different types of therapy. For autism, there's early intervention where we're focused on things like developing functional communication, helping to improve quality of life, helping to reduce, like, for example, if there's significant tantrums or um, self-injurious behavior, helping to reduce those. Um, for ADHD, we're really accommodating and setting up the environment to help kids with inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity thrive in that environment. Anxiety, we're doing what's called exposure therapy, which is like the gold standard that whatever you fear, this is true of all anxiety, whatever we fear, whatever we worry about, a lot of times we want to avoid it. But, and that feels good in the moment because it makes anxiety drop. But what that does long-term is that tells the brain that there's actually something to be scared of. And so through therapy, what we do is called systematic exposure, where we're slowly um, introducing the child to realize that the worst case scenario isn't going to happen, or that if they are facing their fear, that they're able to handle that. And with something like depression, you know, there are different modalities for all of this, but cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is one that has a ton of evidence for both anxiety and depression. So you're likely going to get your child support and work through these. Now, here's the key. I talked about earlier, making sure that you feel like it's a collaboration with your providers. Um, but one of the things that I want to really talk about is that unless you're, you're starting to move into the preteen and teen age, you really should be a part of treatment. This is really, really important because you want to make sure what you're doing at home aligns with what the therapist is teaching. Also, we know, like, think about your child doing homework. Like, can they do their own, like, school homework fully independently with no support? The same is true of therapy. They're going to be given homework. And so being able to support them through that process is really important. Now, as we move into the kind of, like, later elementary, preteen, adolescent age, we do have con confidentiality that we, you know, becomes really important in the therapeutic relationship so that you're that therapist can make sure they're getting the most accurate picture. Um, but you should always still be looped in on things re related to safety. For example, if your child has suicidal ideation, you know, that should be something that you know about, particularly if there's concerns that your child may harm themselves or try to, you know, attempt um, killing themselves, anything like that. Again, I know this stuff is difficult to talk about, but it's so important that we educate ourselves on all of this. Um, and so making sure you're part of the team, and that's exactly it. You are part of a team. The therapist, the psychologist knows what they are doing. Also, sometimes at this point of like, once we know what's going on, that's where we might also be considering medication. So the psychiatrist might be part of the team as well. And so there are different types of medication. I'm not going to go into that too much, but they can be beneficial sometimes to add in addition to therapy. There are situations where medication kind of you know, fixes the problem, but we do want to think about changing behavior so that the medication doesn't have to be a lifelong fix. Um, so ultimately, if your child is on medication, also ha helping to support them and navigate through some of these things are beneficial as well. I realized this was pretty quick. I flew through this because there, I could talk about it. This is what I do day in and day out. I talk about this stuff all the time, but hopefully you got an overview. And then, like I said, you have those resources of how to keep educating yourself. 
And also feel free, like I said, follow me on Instagram and TikTok. It's the period DR. So Dr. Period Tay. I provide lots of information about these topics. I just hope you got some tidbit from this that especially if you're having concerns about your child's development, I hope this was to give you the push that you truly know what you're doing. So don't be afraid to advocate. Don't be afraid to lean into your intuition because time and time again, I mean, I've done hundreds of autism evaluations. For example, time and time again, what I find is that parents' intuition is absolutely incredible. All right, y'all. Thank you. And I hope to connect with you on social media. And I also hope that my free resource um, with books and different resources and all of that, um, like reputable resources, right, um, are of help to you. All right. Bye, y'all. Well, that is a wrap for this week's episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. And listen, y'all, like there isn't a clear messy action for this, but if you have enjoyed this episode, you found value out of this episode, and you've had concerns about your child's development, the biggest thing that I'm going to encourage you to do is to take action, you know, and really start to follow your mommy gut. And I want you to find the value in your mommy gut. It is truly powerful. It is incredible. And like I shared, I see this time and time again. So that's your messy action. If you need to take action, take action. And we cannot wait to see you back for another episode. Don't worry, Jordan will be back next week. Um, We just wanted to air this special one for y'all to hear and for it to be a resource for you rather than, you know, going and trying to Google things. All right, y'all see you next episode. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode. We love when you share your imperfect but impactful progress with us on social media. We've linked our Instagram, leadher.everyday in the show notes so you can tag us. Make sure you don't miss the next episode. Hit subscribe to stay up to date. See you next time.